In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. During the past month, we have heard from almost all of the key players in last February's occupation of Ottawa and blockades at border crossings. Last week, we heard from the man who ultimately took the step that ended it. I am absolutely, absolutely serene and confident um, that I made the right choice. It was clear that it wasn't that they just wanted to be heard. They wanted to be obeyed. There has already been no shortage of political mudslinging regarding Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's testimony at the Emergencies Act inquiry. But perhaps the most important thing was that he took the stand at all. And beyond the Prime Minister answering questions, during this inquiry, Canadians have been given looks into emails, into text messages, phone calls, and all sorts of communication between governments and police services, between different levels of leadership, between different departments, and beyond. And I am not sure yet that we realize how rare this is. And I hope we do. Because once we understand that, we can ask the inevitable follow-up questions. Why is this so rare? Why should it be rare? Why does it take the occupation of the capital, the blockades at borders, and the invocation of an Emergencies Act to get this kind of transparency from our governments? So yes, the findings of the inquiry will be important. But what can we learn about the inquiry itself, its process, and its very public nature that might give the whole country a view into how exactly their governments decide to govern them? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. David Mosscrop is a political writer and commentator. He is the author of a book called Too Dumb for Democracy. He is the host of a podcast called Open to Debate. And he writes about work, governments, and everything else on Substack. Hello, David. Hello. Why don't we begin last week, uh, where the testimony phase of the Emergencies Act inquiry wrapped up. Before he showed up on the stand and took questions, what were you expecting from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau? Well, I was trying in my best Cartesian-inspired attempt at, at fairness um, to not anticipate anything and just to wait and see and let the, the man make his case. But I have to say I was sort of anticipating that he would have a bit of a hard time selling it, even though, incidentally, I supported invoking the Emergencies Act. So I thought he would be a little bit cagey, perhaps defensive, 
flippant and so on. And then, of course, I was disabused of, of most of those notions pretty much from the, from the start. And we played a little bit uh, in the intro of, uh, let's say, his forceful defense of his decision. How would you describe uh, his performance and his answers? And mostly because it's going to get at what we're going to talk about in a few minutes, his openness in response to questions. Yeah, I, I mean, the we have a tendency, of course, in in the assessment of politics in this country to to reduce things to to style. I'm not saying that's what you're doing. I'm saying, but that was one of the the tendencies I saw in display when people were assessing uh, his performance. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that we, to some extent, we have to because the the performance matters, right? It's going to shape how people assess you, whether they think you're telling the truth, whether they think you've communicated clearly. On the performance side, he seemed to do awfully well. At least that was my sense. He was very open, forthright, detailed, seemed to recall quite a bit of what happened and when, fairly engaging, not flippant, uh, resisted the urge to make bad jokes for the most part, which... Not easy for Justin Trudeau. No, he's the sort of person who probably shouldn't make jokes. Uh, It doesn't really work for him. I get the impulse, trust me. But uh, ultimately, I thought it was it was a pretty persuasive and cogent performance, in part because it seemed to be very open, detailed, and honest. And you can tell when someone sits up there for several hours and bullshits you. And you can tell when they don't. And certainly you can tell when, when there's a mix of the two. Hmm. And, and so ultimately, I think, as in, insofar as it was his job to sit up there and tell the truth about what happened... It's, it seems to have gone quite well for, for him and, and therefore for all of us, insofar as we have an interest in knowing the truth about what government does and why. What does this inquiry do now as it moves on to its next phase? And, and what will it do with everything uh, it's heard and, and we've heard over the past month? I do not envy Justice Paul Rulo's task. It's quite a bit of, of testimony. There's weeks of testimony, I think 30, what, 31 days, 32 days, something like that. Mm-hmm. And now he spends a week or so with, with a bunch of experts, roughly 50 experts. We're going to have a series of panels in which they go through different questions and different submissions on uh, of evidence and, and theory assessment about what happened, why it happened, and what it all means. So he's going to have to take all of that and then produce a report uh, that's going to assess the invocation of the act and is going to perhaps make some recommendations, which I think we'll, we'll see. And then that will be tabled in parliament in February. I want to focus on the testimony we've heard for sure over the last 30 plus days, um, but also, you know, the details that we've seen. And here I'm talking about, you know, text messages, uh, phone conversation readouts between police and government officials. It seems to me something very rare in Canadian politics and especially in federal politics that we get that kind of detail. What did you think of it kind of as it was happening day after day? Well, I mean, immediately it was it struck me as extraordinary. Not that, that commissions of inquiry are extraordinary because they're not. They're actually very common. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, if you go back and look at them and you can, you can pull up the federal database and go look at them all going back pretty much to Confederation. There's been one going on at some stage consistently for decades now, quite literally decades. Right. Air India, the mass casualty shooting in Nova Scotia, the Gomery Inquiry, 
uh, missing and murdered, murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry and so on and so forth. Ditto Ontario. We remember, folks will remember Ipperwash in Ottawa. There's the LRT, uh, the light rail transit uh, inquiry, and so on and so forth. So there's lots of that. The difference was this one was about something the government did at a period of time in which there was significant documentary evidence across different platforms, official and unofficial, email, memos, meetings, text messages, group chats, things like that, that were entered into into evidence and made public, which is a a bit of a peek behind the curtain that we don't often get to see, including journalists, you know, try as they might their best to, to do so. And all of a sudden, we were all sort of let in on the process. It looked a little bit like an episode of Veep. Hmm. Uh, and it was a bit of a reminder that politicians are just like us. They like to trash talk in the DMs. They like to crack bag jokes. They're trying to figure it out as they go. They have rivalries. They have commitments. They have biases and so on. It, it's a bit of a solitary reminder, though, because it is. it does suggest to people that government isn't run by a committee of angels. It's not run by philosopher kings. It's run by people who are just trying to get through the day, like like the rest of us. I think you and I have spoken before, certainly around election time, about this government's kind of first impulse to shut down lines of questioning that it doesn't agree with, and they didn't do that this time. Uh, Every government's impulse, I think. The difference is, unlike some, but not all, they came in saying, well, we're going to do things differently. We're going to be open, transparent. Sunny ways, my friend. Sunny ways. Right. Of course, you know, lots of governments and would-be governments do say that they never actually do it. Uh, credit to the ones who don't even pretend; <laughs> they just own the fact that they're going to be opaque by default, and they're going to fight transparency. But this one pretended otherwise. This time around was mostly different. There were some redacted documents, bits of redacted documents that were initially redacted, and, and then later unredacted to an extent. And then people sort of would say, well, why in God's name was that redacted? It seems ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But that's, of course, a function of, of lots of different people. It's not like Justin Trudeau's going line by line and signing these things. Uh, there was a ridiculous moment at which uh, one of the lawyers wanted the government in real time, the prime minister in particular, to redact an entire document. Uh, so sometimes it's taken a little bit far. But the fact is most governments are sort of opaque by default, and, and that's true of this one too. This time there was a difference, though. They had an interest in being as transparent as possible because it aligned with public sentiment. And in fact, most of the transparency made them look pretty good or at least uh, sympathetic, right? When you read through those texts, when you read through the messages and the emails, I suspect most people come away saying, oh, I see, I get it. That makes makes sense to me. Hmm. I think if they had been more antagonistic or if public opinion had been going the other way, uh, we might not have seen quite the, the willingness and openness we did in this case. And so you didn't get the stonewalling you, you typically would. And if you look back, for instance, on uh, committee hearings in, uh, around the government, SNC-Lavalin, for instance, yes. you see a very different posture from the government. As somebody who watches governments closely and uh, can be and has been on this program as well critical of all sides of it, how could we make more transparency uh, the default. You know, you just mentioned that uh, part of Trudeau's pitch to voters when he first got elected was exactly that. It hasn't happened. What kind of process could there be and should there be? Well, there's a big debate over, you know, what specifically ought to be entered into the public domain and when and after how long and, and how sensitive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we can have that big debate. But I'm going to focus on, for the moment, something even simpler. 
making sure that documents, government documents, are one, readable and accessible. And incidentally, Pierre Polyev suggested something like this and was roundly mocked for it by some. I actually think he was on to something there. I do mm-hmm. think government documents that are going to be made public ought to be as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. I've read a lot of these documents. I have a PhD in political science. I do this stuff for a living. Uh, some of them are pretty uh, opaque. Some of them are pretty difficult to to translate. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they ought to be accessible in that way by default. And, and so there you go. I've said something kind, generous about Pierre Polyev. He was right about that. He was doing a culture war shtick about it, which is annoying. But anyway, <laughs> that's beside the point for the moment. Uh, two, the, the documents ought to be accessible in a different way, which is to say they ought to be online in machine-readable formats and formats that are accessible for everyone in the literal sense, not just in terms of being able to process the information, being able to actually access the information. Uh, because right now, it's very tough to find things. And when you find it, God knows what format it's going to be in. And it can be often tough to to work with it when you do find it. So, it, you know, it ought to be clearer in that sense uh, as well. And uh, that would go a long way towards sort of easing uh, the the burden of, of trying to process all this massive glut of information. Because the fact is, there's only so many journalists out there. Fewer every year. Every fewer every year. Uh, and, and for the public, it's not like they're spending their days going through this stuff. So there, there does it does help to have a mediator who can dig through it and make sense of things and, and collate it and present it. But it's it's just an absolute tremendous amount of information, and and the more time you spent trying to you know wrestle with it to get it to understand it, and then to access it in the way that you can uh, then share. Ditto for academic researchers, by the way. Uh, the the less time you have to actually present it to the public or to your colleagues in a way that's useful. That's useful. So I you mean, know, having having a more open by default government that takes accessible uh, information seriously it would would result in in a you know a more informed populace and uh, probably a little bit more trust all in all my name is john cullen and i want to tell you a story it's a story about a scandal broken relationships gossip rumors money corporate rivalry and curling It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. It still seems, I hope, that the next federal election is a ways off. Of this whole process... What do you think has the potential to endure until then with the public, right? There's probably going to be one or two takeaways from this entire thing that are still going to resonate in 2024, 2025. I think most people will care about this. I think most people will care about this a little bit. And I think most people will care about this a little bit for a little while. Huh. And they'll only care about it more when it is made to be salient for some particular reason, like it's in the news and it's a big hot story for a while before we move on to the next shiny, bouncy thing that we've got to go cover, which will be God knows what tomorrow or the next day or the next day. And otherwise, it's going to lie dormant. I don't think it's going to be like the Gomery Inquiry in the early 2000s that that uh, dogged the federal liberals and ultimately cost them government. It was the Gomery Inquiry that was the, the torpedo that sank the, the Paul Martin government ultimately. Right. But uh, I think in this case, most people 
as Paul Wells said, you know, in, in reference to Justin Trudeau's testimony in his Substack, uh, you know, if this changes five minds, I'm the Rockettes. Huh. And I think he's on to something. I don't think it's going to change any minds. I think people have made up their minds already. And I think most people while will look at it and say, okay, well, the takeaway here is that it was a absolute gong show. Nobody seemed to have a handle on this, not the police, not the municipalities. There was no leadership. The feds were painted into a corner and they did what they had to do to adopt temporary limited powers to wrap up this entire thing and so everyone can move on with their lives. And then that's exactly what we'll do. We'll move on with their lives. I just don't think it's going to have the lasting salience that the Gomery Inquiry did or that, say, a big economic scandal might. Uh, I, I think ultimately it will will change very few minds and change very few votes. The one thing that will last and may last a very, very long time is that a very small subset of deeply aggrieved Canadians, those who took part in the thing and those who boosted the thing, the, the occupation and the blockades, will continue to harbor this as a deep point of resentment, a bruise that they're going to keep poking for a very, 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 very long time. But that's a tiny proportion of the population. What about your own thoughts? You mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that you supported the government's decision to invoke the act. What have you heard uh, in the course of all this testimony that not necessarily changed your mind, because I know it hasn't changed, but that that gave you additional insight into why or surprised you about the process? Well, in a sense, nothing surprised me about it because I think it was very plain to anybody who was following it at the time that, that there was a structural problem on a couple of levels. One, there was an awful lot of incompetent people. There was an awful lot of turf policing, a lot of ass covering. And there was a lot of accidentally or deliberately weaponized federalism, you know, that somehow the occupiers, either deliberately or or not, were able to insulate themselves from failure by simply leveraging the fact that our federation is awfully difficult to govern and people screw up all the time. Hmm. So, you know, the police aren't talking to the province properly. The province isn't talking to the federal government. The police here aren't talking to the federal government. The OPP is not talking to the RCMP. The RCMP is not talking to the federal government. Like, who, we, we don't know. If you were to draw the diagram of who's meant to be talking to whom and who didn't speak to whom, it would look like Jackson Pollock. Hmm. It, it would be an utter mess because it was an utter mess. I, I suppose the one thing that was a little bit surprising was that it was obvious to more politicians that it was a a mess than than I thought. I, I thought maybe there would be some politicians who sort of said, oh, no, no, just give it some time. They're sorting it out. But no, it seems like it was pretty much universally accepted, certainly on the federal side, that it was an unmitigated disaster from soup to nuts. And I, I suppose because my expectations over the years of covering politics have, have come to be so low and limited that I underestimated the degree to which the federal government recognized that it was such a problem from day one. But but it leaves me with a question for all orders of government. Why wasn't there a team put together in one room in the first week? Hmm. And I guess it's a little bit like trying to coordinate brunch with families who have children. You just simply can't find the time or the energy to do so. Um, on top of it, so there seemed to be some some animosity between different governments as well that probably didn't help. But I, I think most Canadians watching this would say, well, 
Uh, why the hell couldn't you all get in a room? It was obviously a problem. And even if you didn't believe it was a problem in the first week, by that first weekend, but certainly by two weeks in, it was obviously a problem. It, and you obviously needed to be there. I mean, we had propane tanks outside the Senate, for God's sake, sort of just in the open while people built a shanty town with open flames. So I thought, well, what, what could possibly go wrong? So I think most people would, would look at that and say, well, my God, you've got to be able to coordinate that. So I would have liked a little bit more of an explanation about why that didn't happen. Although I suspect the explanation of why that didn't happen was sort of embedded in the testimony that showed that the whole thing was just, again, an unmitigated absolute failure. Mm -hmm. As Paul Newman might say, uh, you know, what we have here is a failure to communicate. And and we we certainly did. Although, you know, that said, it makes you, I think, a little bit suspicious of other government activity, doesn't it? Just to make you sort of say, well, if this is what it looks like when you try to do this, my God, how are you handling everything else? And that's why we're not transparent in this country. I think that's exactly why we're not transparent. Although it's funny, is you know, it's an open question. If we were, would people eventually get used to it? You know, if politicians were honest and he's like, well, we just don't know. We're working on it. We're figuring it out. Here's what this thing looks like. It's an absolute Rube Goldberg machine. It's a total mess. We're just, we're trying to get through the day. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think people would sort of say, Oh, I get it. This is exactly what I thought. But you know, there's something kind of endearing and sympathetic about that, isn't there? And yet politicians sort of pretend that they've that they are the leader, they're in control, they've got a handle on it. I I don't know. I think in some cases you obviously need that. In a time of crisis and emergency, you need that. Incidentally, that's exactly what we didn't have during the, the occupation. But day to day, I I want to know that they're sort of figuring it out as they go and they're not always on top of the ball because who the hell is? I think we have unreasonable expectations for our politicians, and I think we have them in part because they set unreasonable expectations for themselves. Very last question, because you mentioned earlier that you don't think this is going to change more than five people's minds uh, one way or the other. Will that stop Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau from fighting about it one way or another um, until the next election? Will this be something that that both sides try to use to score points? I wonder, and again, I mean, it was Paul Wells who said, you know, look, you know, if it changes five minds, I'm the Rockettes, and I, I'm inclined to agree with him. We might both be disproven or, or proved to be wrong should data come out and suggest that, that in fact, minds were changed by this. Uh, I suspect there's going to be polling on it. So, you know, of course, as always, everything we say is subject to to being checked by by data. Maybe the federal liberals will want to try to wrap Polyev's ankle with this and 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 weigh him down with it. Maybe Polyev will want to try to make this into an example of, of a, a sort of tin pot dictatorship that is going to strip away all your rights. But I actually think that it's it probably won't work, and neither side is going to want to carry this around like a standard going into battle. Maybe they will, but I, I just don't see that as as something that's going to win a ton of votes or shape a lot of the discussion a year from now or two years from now. I think it's going to actually just burn a lot of time and, and energy when there are other things that we can be talking about. Not that this wasn't important, and it is. There's a reason we're having this commission, and we ought to. But I also don't think we have to to dwell on it for several years. And I, and I don't think we will. I, perhaps it'll come back up when the report comes out because without a doubt, that report is going to recommend something. There's going to be recommendations for sure coming from the Rouleau Commission. And that'll be a point of contention. Mm-hmm. And if it's found that the government 
ought not to have invoked the act, that's certainly going to be something that perhaps raises the salience. But again, I think the, the majority of Canadians aren't going to cast a ballot or spend a ton of time thinking about this in a deep way during a recession, <laughs> uh, COVID, climate catastrophe, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I, I think they're going to be worried about other things. David, as always, thank you for this fascinating conversation. My pleasure. David Mosscrop, a political commentator that you can find at davidmosscrop.substack.com. And that was the big story. I have some feedback to share, as I promised I would occasionally hear. And my favorite kind of feedback, honestly, and I swear I'm not doing this because I am a masochist, is people writing in to complain about Toronto issues. This one is about Narwhal Week, episode one. Why is Doug Ford slicing up Ontario's green belt? It's feedback from John, who says, you do realize that you were a national program, right? Why would anyone care about Toronto municipal politics outside of Toronto? If you were New York or LA, I may care. Well, you shouldn't because you're Canadian. Because those are actually interesting and influential cities. Toronto is an oversized suburb with garbage leadership. I'm not going to actually debate that point, mostly because Toronto and Ontario citizens are lazy and dumb when it comes to electing leaders. Not going to debate that one either. So why would I want to hear about it? Your problems are your own. Fair points, I would say. Except our problems aren't our own, man. The Greenbelt is a huge swath of land that, if nothing else, contributes to holding on to a lot of carbon that would otherwise count negatively against emissions across the whole country. Never mind being bad for the world. Never mind. It's just not a good thing to cut down trees. Surely we can agree on that. Leave the developers and the Toronto municipal politics out of it. Save the forest. Thank you for listening. You can find The Big Story at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us just like John did, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. I can't promise that I won't be sarcastic when I read it. And of course, you can call and leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and it's available on your smart speaker, Just ask it to play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency.